This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's ask the Lord's guidance and direction on our time with him. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have not only... uh, breathed out the scriptures so that they are given without error, but you have also overseen the preservation of your word down through the centuries, and you have provided a time for us in which we live where we can have accurate translations of your word before us, and that we can have our own possession of your word that we can read and that we can study and that we can cherish day to day. Father, we pray now as we study your word and begin uh, this new study on the life of Christ through Matthew, we pray that you might challenge us as Matthew's gospel challenge us to be more diligent students of your word, uh, learning your word that we might apply it uh, primarily in terms of changing the way in which we think so that it will in turn transform the way we live. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. This morning is our second in a new series on Matthew, which I began last time, and it is my custom when I begin a series uh, of uh, book study to do an overview of the book. So often when we go through uh, studies of different books in Scripture, we spend so much time uh, analyzing and dealing with the verses and the passages within each book that we sometimes lose sight of the context. And as I keep emphasizing, as you know, context is important. It is often uh, leads to a problem when people take scriptures out of context and then shape them and apply them in ways that do not really fit with their original intended meaning within the context of each book or epistle. And so last time I began, as I have for many times, uh, starting with what I call flyover. Where we, where I tried to cover the entire book in about an hour. There's a lot of detail that goes with that, and uh, I don't expect people to necessarily sit and take notes and be able to catch everything that I point out because we'll be coming back to most of those points again and again and again. But it gives you an orientation to the book as a whole. We must remember that most of the books of the New Testament were written with the intent that they would be read in a single sitting. 
And so they are designed for us to sit and read. And I encourage you as we go through any of our studies, whether it's uh, Sunday morning in Matthew, Tuesday night in Acts, or Thursday night in Romans, that you read through those books on your own again and again so that you become more and more familiar with the overall context of those books. And that means that those studies will become more significant for you as we go through them. Matthew is written uh, from a distinct perspective as each of the Gospels are. There are four Gospels that begin the New Testament. The first three are referred to as synoptic Gospels because they are uh, similar, parallel to one another, and in many cases cover much of the same material from slightly different perspectives. The Gospel of John records distinct events and discourses from the Lord Jesus Christ and is not seen to be a synoptic gospel. It is fitting for Matthew to be the first gospel because Matthew focuses on Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and prophecies of an ideal king known as the Messiah. The Messiah was identified by a prophecy from uh, Jacob to his son Judah, that the uh, Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah and be identified as the Lion of Judah. And so because Matthew's gospel is distinctively related to the Old Testament more than the other, uh, the other three, it has its first place in the New Testament to serve as a uh, transition from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, to the New Testament. And so this morning, after doing the flyover last week, what I want to do is just cover some basic uh, information that, uh, again, introduces us to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it's important to understand that what a gospel is— that Gospels were, were written for a distinct purpose, and they had not only primary purposes in relationship to their major theme, but also secondary purposes. And one of the secondary purposes, as we'll see in Matthew, is to challenge the reader to be consistent, to persevere as a student of the Word, as a student or disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is the challenge that we must take away from almost every lesson, is that this is written not only to give information about uh, the work of Christ on the cross, but also to challenge us that because that is true, that we are to live our lives as uh, committed disciples of Jesus Christ. We're going to begin with the first question, which is understanding what a gospel is, understanding the term gospel. It comes from the Greek word evangelion, which means good news. A gospel proclaims the good news of the arrival of the Savior promised from the Old Testament through the presentation of Jesus of Nazareth in terms of his life, his teaching, and his substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. That sums up the idea here. This is what a gospel does. Uh, they are not simply presentations of the good news related to 
uh, salvation or how to gain eternal life, but they are also written to challenge those who have received eternal life by believing in Jesus as their Savior to live a life that is consistent with that, and that is an emphasis, especially in Matthew, on this term, disciple, as we will see. The Gospels were written primarily to present a case, like a legal argument before a judge in a courtroom. Uh, They are designed to uh, present a case, an argument for uh, who Jesus of Nazareth is and what he did. As such, the Gospels are not biographies per se, but they are biographical. They are not histories per se, but they are historically accurate. They are not theological per se, but they are, they do contain much uh, theology. They are not oriented simply to the unsaved, but they include many challenges for the individual believer so that they, we can say that they include biographical, historical, uh, theological, and instructional uh, material. Each of these Gospels was written for a distinct purpose. Matthew is written to present Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. The Gospel of Mark was written to present Jesus as the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. Uh, Luke was written to present Jesus as the Son of Man. We see this, we'll see this in the comparison between the genealogy that Matthew presents in Matthew 1 and the genealogy Luke presents in Luke 3. Matthew traces the origin of Jesus back to Abraham and David, whereas Luke presents Jesus' uh, descent all the way back to Adam, relating him to the entire uh, human race. He is the Son of Man. Uh, John presents Jesus as the Son of God. Now, each writer of the Gospels, in terms of this fact that they are presenting a case or presenting an argument, a thesis, if you will, about Jesus, is then going to uh, bring together and choose and select specific events and specific teaching from the life of Christ that fits his purpose, fits his argument, that's going to provide evidence to substantiate his basic thesis or basic point. And this is a principle of selectivity, and this really helps you in a very simple way understand uh, what has confounded many scholars. We live in an era today where gospel scholarship for the past 100 to 150 years has really developed a, a, a massive amount of minefields for the gospel student. Uh, you can find all kinds of different things taught about the Gospels uh, from the most extreme liberal position, which rejects any kind of divine inspiration or divine authorship of Scripture or any kind of divine involvement in the writing of Scripture up to the uh, what I believe is the conservative biblical view of Scripture, which is that God inspired or breathed out uh, the Scriptures for us. And so that not only are these individual human writers writing from their own background, their own experience, their own personalities, but they are being guided and directed and superintended by God the Holy Spirit to write uh, that which will be without error. 
Uh, often what you do when you read some of the modern contemporary studies on the Gospels or you see some of these shows that show up on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or some of those shows which are designed to seek out the truth about Jesus and basically what they do is reject whatever the Scripture says, they uh, miss some of these these very points. So I'm going to give you a basic illustration of how uh, the writers uh, handle things. First of all, we have uh, in this circle a representation of everything that Jesus said or did. Now, we're reminded by the uh, author of the Gospel of John that if everything that Jesus said and did was written down, all of the books of the world could not contain them. Now, that's an overstatement. Uh, scripture uses hyperbole as a figure of speech, but it impresses us with the fact that it that that there were many, many things uh, almost without number that Jesus said and taught that are not recorded for us. These are all, therefore, going to be representative events and teachings uh, of Jesus. And so let's say we have three different events or three different statements by Jesus, and <clears throat> Matthew looks at the first one, and he decides that that uh, fits his particular uh, argument, what he plans to uh, say, what he plans to communicate, and so he is going to add those. Let me back that up. This has a little animation in it, and I'm messing that animation up by getting in too big of a hurry. There. Okay, Matthew then comes along, and he is going to select uh, A, and he's going to include that in his uh, gospel. Then he's going to look at B, and he is not going to select that because that doesn't fit his purpose. So then he comes along and he sees, takes event C, and he adds that and includes that uh, within his gospel. Then we look at Mark. Mark comes along, looks at the three events, and he looks at A, and he says, well, I really don't want to talk about A. That doesn't fit my purpose. Uh, B does fit my purpose, so I'm going to include that. And then C also fits my purpose, so I'm going to include uh, include that. I kind of messed up that animation a little bit, so we'll uh, go ahead and bypass that slide. We clearly see this in the teaching of, of the Gospels themselves. For example, in John 20, 30, and 31, uh, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, I've selected these signs. There are many, many others, but I've selected these to fit the purpose of my gospel to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his, in his name. We also learn from uh, from a study of these events that uh, they're written in different uh, different order. Only Luke is written in a in a strict chronological order. He tells us that at the beginning of his uh, gospel. The other synoptic writers, Matthew and Mark, are more selective, and at times they're chronological, and at other times they. Uh, rearrange the material to fit a logical, uh, a logical order or a logical uh, presentation. So part of their 
their Gospels are arranged chronologically, but other parts are arranged thematically. That doesn't fit how we normally think of a biography in our Western mindset, a modern biography, but these are Gospels. They're not biographies. They're written to demonstrate uh, specific purposes. We must recognize that all of the books, all of the material is divinely inspired. That means it is breathed out by God. And so God, the Holy Spirit, was overseeing the process and how this material was organized and arranged. Uh, just because it's arranged in a thematic way doesn't mean that it's, that it's violating some sort of chronology. This is how they wrote often in the ancient world. Key scriptures for this are, of course, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Second uh, uh, Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God. He is the ultimate author of all scripture that is written in and through and by human authors, and he oversees or superintends the process to make sure that it is uh, free from error. John 14.26, Jesus told his disciples that after he left, the, the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and, most importantly, bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you so that it was not left to their fallible human memory to record these events, but that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen them and enable them so that they would record them uh, in a correct manner. It was not, uh, therefore, they are not making mistakes. What may appear to us to be differences or contradictions, uh, with further study, it's demonstrated that these are not uh, contradictions or, or significant differences. Now, who did he write to? To whom did uh, Matthew compose this gospel? He's writing to Jewish Christians in Judea, much like the later author of the uh, epistle to the Hebrews. He is writing at an earlier stage, probably 20 years before the author of Hebrews, and he's writing to encourage these Jewish believers in Judea that Jesus is indeed who he proclaimed himself to be. Yes, indeed, he is the Messiah, uh, and he uh, fulfills these many prophecies from the Old Testament, and he's in writing this to encourage these Jewish believers because he knows that they are beginning to face rejection, they're going to face opposition, and ultimately they're going to face persecution, and above all, they will face the uh, ultimate destruction of the temple during the time of the Jewish revolt from A.D. 66 to A.D. 70. So he is writing to Jewish believers who have a firm understanding already of the Old Testament and of Jewish customs and of Jewish traditions. This takes us to the third area in the introduction, which is to talk a little bit about the Jewish character of Matthew. Matthew is perhaps the most Jewish-oriented uh, gospel of the four, not that the other four aren't, because their authors all have, uh, even though Luke might be of Gentile background, um, the uh, Mark and John specifically also are uh, Jewish and have a, and there's definitely a Jewish flavor to their gospels, but not as much as Matthew. So first of all, there's the style of writing. 
the style of writing. Matthew's style is very Jewish. If you know Hebrew and you're familiar with just the sentence structure and how uh, the writing is done in Old Testament narrative, then when you read Matthew, it sounds very familiar. The style is very Jewish. It's obvious that it's written by someone who is who has Hebrew as their first language, and he demonstrates through the way he writes the use of various different uh, Hebrew uh, styles in terms of parallelism and elaboration. His general thought and style are distinctively Semitic. If you think about the way you read Old Testament stories like Genesis or you read in Joshua or you read in Judges or First Samuel, you constantly see verses that begin with, and he said, and he did, and they went, and they fought, and it always begins with this uh, preposition and, and it indicates, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And sometimes in English that isn't translated because in English style that is considered to be uh, too repetitious. But that's how they wrote in in the storytelling style uh, of, of Hebrew narrative, and then, and then, and then. Well, in Greek, the word then, which we find in in Matthew some um, 90 times, is the Greek word tote. Tote is used 90 times in the Gospel of Matthew. Guess how many times it's used in the other Gospels? In the Gospel of Mark, it's only used six times. 90 times in Matthew, six times in Mark, 14 times in Luke, and 10 times in John. See, that reflects a very Jewish mentality when it comes to telling uh, telling a story. So the style of writing is very Jewish. Second, the vocabulary, the vocabulary that Matthew uses is, is very Jewish. He uses terms like the kingdom of heaven. If you've been around Bible teaching for very long, and especially among dispensational Bible teachers, you're aware of the fact that for some time there was a debate as to whether the the phrase kingdom of heaven and the phrase kingdom of God referred to two different kingdoms. The reality is that the the phrase kingdom of heaven is distinctively a Matthew term. You don't find it in the other Gospels. Matthew uses it 32 times. He uses the phrase kingdom of God only five times. The reason he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven is because in a Jewish mindset, you didn't mention or use the name of God. The name of God was a sacred name. Sometimes you'll see this um, reference today. You'll see people write God G hyphen D. And the reason is, is because they don't want to say or write the name of God, so they use that little circumlocution. And reading the Hebrew Scriptures, often when, uh, when usually when Jews read, they will substitute something for uh, when they see the name Yahweh in the text. They will read either Hashem, the name, or they will read Adonai, meaning Lord. They will not pronounce the name of God. And so rather than writing God, uh, <clears throat> because he's sensitive to this being Jewish, Matthew would write the kingdom of heaven, heaven being the abode of God, and therefore heaven would be just a, a circumlocution or another way of saying uh, the kingdom of God. This is uh, very much uh, indicates uh, his Jewishness. 
Also, he calls Jesus the son of David. Nine times in Matthew, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. And by comparison, he's only referred to as the son of David three times in Mark, three times in Luke, and never in the Gospel of John. That term, son of David, has particular significance to a Jewish audience. Um, The term son of man is used many times in Matthew, and it's a term that looks back to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that in the future the Son of Man would come before the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom, and then he would come to the earth to establish his kingdom. So Matthew, who's particularly focused on uh, the offer, the rejection, and the postponement of the kingdom, uses this, this phrase, Son of Man, many times because it is a term associated with that messianic uh, kingdom. Matthew also refers to Jerusalem as the holy city. In uh, Matthew 4, 5 and 27, 53, he calls Jerusalem the holy city. Uh, this is also indicative of the fact that he wrote the gospel long before he, uh, long before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. If Jerusalem had been dis- already destroyed by the Romans, he would not be speaking in such high elevated terms of Jerusalem because by then, uh, after A.D. 70, Jerusalem was a smoking ruin and the temple had been destroyed. He does not indicate that he's aware that that has happened yet. He speaks of Jerusalem as the holy city, as the city of the great king, and he refers to Israel as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All of this terminology is specifically Jewish. Then he refers to Jewish subject matter. He deals with the kingdom, he deals with the Jerusalem, the temple, he deals with David, the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, and multiple references to Moses. All of this sets it apart as being distinctively Jewish. And then there are the the matter of the Old Testament quotations. Now, it depends on how you kind of add up these verses, because sometimes you'll have a two-verse reference uh, and sometimes people will count, some, one scholar will count that as two references, and another one will count that as one reference. So the numbers differ a little bit, but one writer states that there are a total of 129 references to the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, 53 of these are direct quotations. Now, I counted 54, but that's because sometimes you, you're not sure how they're counting these double references. Uh, double verse references. About 53, he says, are direct references, and 76 are simply allusions to Old Testament stories, Old Testament people, or Old Testament events. So it's clearly a, a distinctive gospel in terms of its, its Old Testament uh, allusions. At least 23 times, as I counted through, through Matthew, Matthew indicates that something that is happening in Jesus' life is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. Now, he may not use fulfillment terminology. He may not say this is a fulfillment of this. He may just say, uh, he may just quote the Old Testament passage. In other way, there are other ways of introducing that. But 23 times he is indicating that a, an event in Jesus' life or ministry is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy or type. As part of that, he specifically uses the phrase that the scriptures might be fulfilled or this is a fulfillment of. He uses that specific fulfillment terminology nine times in Matthew. 
Guess how many times Mark, Luke, and John use that fulfillment phrase? Not once. So that, again, makes Matthew distinctive in showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Then we have the genealogy, the genealogy in Matthew 1, uh, <clears throat> distinctively emphasizes uh, Jesus' Jewish roots, tracing him back to Abraham, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so this emphasizes his Jewish uh, and Davidic credentials and that he's a fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. There's also an emphasis on Peter. Uh, Peter was distinctively the, epistle, the apostle to the to the, the, uh, to the Jews. And so Matthew says more about Peter than the other Gospels uh, do. And seventh, he mentions but does not explain Jewish customs or titles. In other words, he assumes that his reader is familiar with the local history, the local customs, and so he doesn't explain these individuals or their titles like Luke does. Uh, for example... Uh, a couple of passages here, Matthew 2, uh, 1. Uh, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. He doesn't really explain anything about uh, who Herod is. Um, in verse 22 of Matthew 2, he says, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, he doesn't mention anything more about Archelaus. He assumes that people knew who he was. Uh, Matthew 14.1, he refers to Herod the Tetrarch, but doesn't say much more about him than that. In contrast, in Luke 2, 1 and 2, he gives a little more information about the people that are mentioned. Caesar Augustus is known, of course. Quirinius is the governor of Syria, is identified. He's not just mentioned as Quirinius, but as the governor of Syria. And in Luke 3, 1, we read, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, so he doesn't just mention his name, he gives a little more information, uh, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, just doesn't say Herod the Tetrarch, he says Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias the Tetrarch of Abilene. That's not Abilene, Texas, that's Abilene up in Syria. Okay, just want to make sure you were listening. Okay, so you see he's assuming his readers uh, know who these people are. So he, under, he he's writing within a, within a Jewish context. And then we know that, that from the early church, from the earliest uh, decade of the f- second century, that there is <clears throat> the belief in the, first, uh, first, uh, in the early church that Matthew was written uh, to a Jewish audience. Irenaeus writes that Matthew issued a written gospel among the Hebrews, and the gospel of St. Matthew was written uh, for the Jews. Origen, writing in the... Uh, uh, Third century, writes St. Matthew, wrote for the Hebrews, and Eusebius also writing in the third century, early fourth century, writes, Matthew delivered his gospel to his countrymen. But there are numerous other references, such as Clement of Rome, who's near the end of the first century, early second century, Polycarp, uh, Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, many, many others, all quote from and reference Matthew. And so this indicates that Matthew was written very early. This is significant because among liberal Protestants, they want to come along and say, no, 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 no. What, what happened was you had this period of telling these stories, this oral tradition that comes along, and then it's, uh, 
then it's several decades or centuries later before somebody comes along and compiles these stories and writes them. So you, they're really mostly legend. Uh, they don't really fit historical or archaeological evidence today. And so they're, they're, they're just legendary stories, and so they reject all of this. But the reality is that these Gospels now are, are can press back to very, very early times. For example, we have one... Uh, papyri, one fragment of a chapter of the Gospel of John that dates back to about 115. That's very, very early considering John's Gospel is generally thought to be one of the last written probably. Uh, some people think it was written even after uh, the Revelation, which would mean that 115 was, could be within 20 years of the writing of the Gospel of John. Uh, most people put, would put it somewhere around 85 to 90, maybe just before he wrote the Revelation. But uh, the Gospel of Mark, interestingly enough, and I've just learned this, and I'll tell you everything anybody knows about this. One of my uh, classmates from uh, Dallas Seminary named Dan Wallace is really specialized in the whole area of uh, textual criticism and had started an organization about, I think, 15 or 20 years ago where they began to go through many of the Eastern European countries, uh, North African countries, see, see with, with high-definition cameras, uh, going into um, very ancient monasteries, going into their libraries and into their uh, cellars and into their rubbish bins, seeking any kind of ancient manuscript they could and taking high-definition pictures. I mean, these these cameras are so uh, technically... Uh, 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 have such technical perfection that they can zero in on a on a manuscript and actually take a picture. If there, it's a document called the palimpsest, is one where the original writing was erased and then something else was put on top of it. And sometimes we have these palimpsest documents where uh, the original was erased and it was scripture and something else was written on top of it and they can they can take a picture of it with the right kind of lighting and everything and they can get a picture of what was originally written uh on that uh papyrus or uh on the vellum or whatever whatever the original writing mat- uh, material was and so this is this is just remarkable and he has un- under a contract to where he cannot, he's on a non-disclosure contract right now, but E.J. Brill, which is a uh, very well-known scholarly publication house in Europe, has has put him under contract writing a book where they have discovered, uh, he claims that he's discovered a first-century fragment of the Gospel of Mark. That is huge. This is going to be a blockbuster thing. I've read a few conversations. I've heard him mention this, but that's all he can say about it because of this non-disclosure agreement. So th- these kinds of things push our understanding of the gospel origins back into the first century, as we have always believed. So uh, whatever you re- hear on the... I-, I was watching something just this last week on the one of these history channels, and they were saying making these claims that the gospels were written much much later. But that just flies in the face of this evidence, but it doesn't fit the narrative that they... Uh, they want to propose. So, 
all of that to say that these these Gospels were written by Matthew to a Jewish audience for a specific purpose. It's clear they were written by Matthew, even though he doesn't take credit for it. Uh, for w- One of the indications is that in the Gospels they talk about the calling of Matthew when Jesus calls his disciples, and then when he calls Matthew the tax collector in Matthew, he says, take me to your house for dinner. Matthew just refers to this as going to the house. He doesn't say it was his house. He just says they went to the house and it was a dinner. But when you compare that with the description in Luke and in Mark, it's described by Luke as a great feast. Uh, and the other gospel writers describe this as a, as a huge banquet. So apparently Matthew was fairly well off. Well, this is why tax collectors were hated is because they skimmed a lot of money off of what they uh, took in for Rome. And so that this fits a picture of the tax collector. Uh, some other indications uh, uh, that this was written by someone who was uh, uh, financially astute is that there's more information in Matthew uh, and more mention of money type of terms. He uh, uses terms related to debt, accounting, uh, account uh, reckoning, uh, money changers. He talks about uh, terms such as gold, silver, and brass, terms that are not used in the other Gospels. He refers to a talent, which was a represented a huge sum of money that was not one that was familiar to to most people. So uh, there are all these indications that the writer of Matthew does indeed fit the scenario of someone who was familiar with finance. The book was written for three main purposes. First of all, to convince his Jewish audience that that Jesus was indeed the prophesied uh, Messiah in whom they believed, and thus the rightful heir to the Davidic uh, throne. He starts off in the very first verse, identifying this as the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Greek is Jesus Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew Yeshua HaMashiach. Mashiach is the term for uh, the Messiah, so in English, this would be Jesus the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title uh, indicating that he is the anointed one, the promised and prophesied Savior from the Old Testament. So he's writing to convince his Jewish audience, uh, both believers and those who are not yet believers, that Jesus is indeed the promised and prophesied Messiah. Second, he's writing to show why the kingdom had been postponed, that Jesus came to offer the kingdom, that John the Baptist offered the kingdom, Jesus offered the kingdom, the disciples offered the kingdom, but the kingdom was rejected, and so it had been postponed. The biggest objection you might get from a Jewish audience is, okay, so Jesus is the Messiah, where's the kingdom? And that was their, that is the historical response from a Jewish audience, is that if Jesus is the king, where's the kingdom? Why isn't it here? So Matthew is written to show why the kingdom was postponed and what's going on with the Gentiles and what the present plan of God is uh, today for the church. Uh, he writes also to explain God's interim program that the sons of the kingdom, that's a term referencing uh, uh, those who are believers, will experience as well as the coming of the church and the church age. Matthew is the only gospel writer that mentions the term ecclesia, the church. So he's, he focuses on that part of the interim program that will come. The basic theme of the book the basic theme of the book is to show that Jesus was the Messianic Davidic king and that the kingdom had been offered, 
rejected and postponed. So he organizes his material that way. Uh, the first uh, four chapters are written in chronological order. Then we have uh, chapters five through seven, which are the which records the Sermon on the Mount. And then the next uh, chapters up through about uh, thirteen, I believe, are written in a uh, thematic, not in a chronological order, and then the rest of the, the gospel is written in a chronological order. Uh, he specifically writes to emphasize the royal kingly heritage of Jesus. He refers to him consistently as the son of David, the king. He calls, uh, when uh, references Joseph uh, in Matthew uh, 1, Joseph is called Joseph, the son of David. When the Magi appear, they're looking for the king of the Jews. And then towards the end, uh, in Matthew 21, 5, uh, he quotes from Zechariah 9, 9, uh, tell, where Jesus says, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is taken from Zechariah 9, 9, as I've indicated in the slide with the underline. And also he quotes from uh, Isaiah 62, 11. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion. See, that's the opening uh, phrase there in Matthew 21, 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work with him. Now, in conclusion, the Gospel of Matthew was written to teach or to instruct. It has a very uh, significant uh, didactic or instructional purpose. This is indicated first by the way Matthew groups his material. Uh, He groups his material into groups of three, five, six, or seven. And this is done, uh, was done in the ancient world for instructional purposes, uh, to make it easy to communicate certain things and also for memorization purposes. Uh, in addition to that, Matthew also groups his material on the basis of, of logic. For example, in the genealogies we'll see, he breaks it down into three groups of 14 generations each. Uh, Christ's miracles are all uh, the, the miracles that are for the benefit of the nation to demonstrate that he's the Messiah are all grouped together in just a couple of chapters in order to emphasize that, whereas they were actually spread out over a period of time and not necessarily in that order. Also, when it comes to the material involving Israel's rejection of the kingdom and Christ's training principles for the disciples, those are lumped together and clustered together uh, for teaching purposes. Uh, second, we see that there's an emphasis on the teaching of Jesus. Of the 1,071 verses in Matthew, 60% of them contain Christ's teaching. 60% are related to specific instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ. There are five major discourses that are listed, are, that are conveyed in Matthew. There's a Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. There's a missionary discourse as he sends out his disciples in chapter 10. There are the kingdom parables in chapter 13. There's the uh, discourse, the humility discourse in chapter 18, and the Olivet discourse in chapters 24 through 25. So if you want to see the greatest amount of detail from Christ's teaching, we go to the Gospel of Matthew. He also uses prophecy to teach about the Messiah, prophecy and history. He goes to Old Testament prophecy, constantly instructing his audience on who Jesus is. 
Uh, it's also seen in his use of grammar. He uses an aorist tense verb in the Greek. We don't have something comparable to that in English, but it's, it just kind of moves the story along and keeps it, keeps it moving, keeps it a little active. And so he's, he's constantly graphically portraying history as a teaching tool for his uh, audience. And then last, his use of the verb disciple. Disciple. We hear a lot of talk today about discipleship. There's some ministries that have, parachurch ministries that have made discipleship, you know, their major thing. And you would think that on every single page you're going to hear Jesus talk about making disciples. Uh, the disciples is a noun, is a term that mathetes means a learner, a student. It's used many times in the gospels, but interestingly enough, the verb to disciple is only used three times in Matthew, in Matthew 13:52, Matthew 27:57, and of course the most well-known in Matthew 28:19, where Jesus commanded the disciples, uh, soon to be apostles, to go and make disciples of all the nations. Three times the verb is used in Matthew. Three times. Guess how many times it's used in Luke? Zero. Mark zero. John zero. Acts, one time. You don't find it anywhere else. And here we have ministry to say they're built on discipleship, and yet this is a word that is rarely, rarely even used. Now, I'm not knocking the idea. I'm just saying that there are many other ways in which this concept is emphasized in Scripture. The command in, in, in the, and the message in, in Matthew is clearly that we are to become disciples. There is much that is taught in Matthew related to uh, becoming a disciple. That's not the same as becoming a Christian. That's not the same as becoming a believer. It's, it's being a believer who recognizes that to really understand and experience all that God has for us, we must make it a priority to become a student of the Word of God, a student of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not just learn it, but apply it, make it change our thinking and change the way in which we live. Uh, this was the command to the disciples and thus to all, especially pastors, but to all Christians that we are to make disciples or make students or learners of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then look at verse 20, teaching them. That's what discipleship is. It's instructional. It's pedagogical. It is teaching them to do what? Not just to learn theology, not just to learn doctrine. This is doctrine. To, to, to observe, that means to implement and to apply all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the message, is that we are to be disciples. When we read Matthew, the action plan in Matthew is, are you going to be a disciple? In light of all of this, in light of the fact that Jesus fulfilled all of these promises, in light of everything that Jesus taught, are you going to be someone who just has a casual acquaintance with the Word of God? Are you going to be somebody who just simply enjoys the study for its academic and intellectual stimulation? Are you going to be somebody who's going to take the Word of God and devote your life to it, make it your passion so that it changes the way you think and the way you live so that you are living and preparing your life for your future role to rule and reign with Jesus Christ when he comes in his kingdom. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to study these things and to be challenged by the message of Matthew that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the eternal second person of the Trinity who ascended into human history to become a, a human being 
to go to the cross to die for our sins and ultimately to come to establish his kingdom. But, Father, we know that there is no hope, there is no future, there is no eternity apart from Jesus. And we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, never understood the gospel, that this would be a time when they would understand the simple message of the gospel, that salvation is a free gift. Uh, Receiving eternal life is a free gift based on faith alone. It's not based on changing our life first. It's not based on a moral reformation. It's not based on any other factor other than simply trusting or believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray that we might be receptive to this message and also the challenge of Matthew that we are to become disciples. We are to become students of the word. It is to be our passion. It's to be our life that we are to make this uh, just a uh, the defining characteristic of everything that we do. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with this truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.